coming up on this episode of the MD and Chef Team Show. The teachers allowing children to calibrate behaviour earlier on in, in the piece at school where mm. it's facilitated conversations, creating safety, giving them an opportunity to feel courageous about talking about something they wouldn't normally talk about. But, you know, doing it early, early on where it's not as hard to do, it's, it's become normal. I mean, one of the examples I use is the Harvey Weinstein stuff, right? Once one woman came out, amazingly all these other women came out. Why? Because the safety was there now. Welcome to the show from the The MD MD and Chef Team. Team. I'm Dr. Isabel, medical doctor here at the MD and Chef Team. And who are you? I'm Chef Michael, culinary nutrition expert. I'm the chef part of the team. And what are we going to talk about, babe? Now, I can say that because he's my husband. (laughs) Yes. Well, then we'll be talking about marriage, relationships, parenting, intimacy. We'll talk about mindsets of success, overcoming depression, anxiety. I'll be getting into functional nutrition, recipes and tips from the kitchen. And we're going to both get into how to live a long, healthy, vibrant life. Yes, I love it. Our mission is to help you prevent and reverse disease and give you hope in the process. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. We We like like to have fun, fun too. So let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MD and Chef Team. I'm Dr. Isabel, medical doctor here. And here at the MD and Chef Team, our whole goal is to prevent and reverse disease and give hope in the process. And today we've got Clint Adams, which I am so excited to interview. And he's given me a little something to share with you before I start asking all these questions. He is a former Victorian police officer who studied psychology and later rehabilitation counseling. His police counseling, injury management, senior human resource roles, and working with asylum seekers have made him develop insights into the psychology and social interactions of individuals in trying conditions. Welcome, Clint. Thanks for having me, Dr. Isabel. (laughs) You're welcome. Where are you coming from? So I'm in Brisbane, Australia at the moment. I love Brisbane. It's uh, rainy at the moment, though. It's probably a bit like New Zealand. Probably the last time I was there, it was a bit rainy. But, um, you know, it's usually pretty good. So tell me, tell us your story. We, we all have a story and I just love listening to people's stories. Sure. Probably the story that led me to what I'm doing now, which is in this suicide prevention and, and teaching resilience and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so many years ago, I was very excited to get involved in psychology. At a high school, I uh, got really interested in movies like Science of the Lambs and profiling and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it all kind of started there. So I ended up doing a science degree in psychology, going into pharmacology as well. So kind of put my, you know, my foot in both parts around forensic. So what, what we now, now know as forensic psychology was kind of the, the, the platform and the areas I was looking and, and getting interested in. So I joined Victoria Police, as you pointed out. Um, became a police officer, did nearly six years as a police officer, but I won't bore you with details, but a few things changed along the way and my my desire to go into the forensic side of it changed and I, I kind of became more interested in doing true counselling, which is why I did some more studies in the rehabilitation counselling piece. 
did those studies at Sydney University. And, and then I went into private practice and worked as a counsellor or rehabilitation kind of um, counsellor, you know, people who had physical injuries but had real problems dealing with it psychologically and that kind of stuff was probably the mainstay of, of that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what was happening was uh, having been an ex-cop, um, the company I was working for were getting a lot of police members uh, doing work with the police members and they'd asked for me to work with them because obviously having been in the position and, and understanding a bit more. So I was getting a lot of police work at the time. So to the point where the police approached me and said, hey, do you want to come work for us and, and we want to bring this in-house, we don't want to outsource it anymore. And so I basically became a counsellor working with rehabilitation within the police force, so people with PTSD, people, you know, police with, with issues and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got back into the police and, and I worked with the police for another four or five years where I was doing rehabilitation. That then developed into something called... Um, manager of the standards branch where we're looking at how we can do things better, how we can organise uh, programs for the police, you know, um, to, to, I guess, enhance what they were doing. We're also looking at different ways of, of um, bringing more women into the organisation. Um, Christine Nixon, our then commissioner, was very heavily involved in, in trying to, to increase those numbers of women for, for a number of reasons. So the stats were showing that, you know, police... Uh, incidents where they were involved in, you know, maybe overstepping the mark or were using excessive force tended to be with two male officers rather than when a woman was present, it was a lot less likely to... It was softer, shall I say. It was It was just better. It was better. <laughs> yes! It was better. And, um, you know, and, and so there were combinations of reasons for that is, you know, yes, the perpetrator might respond differently to two males than with a woman there. It was also the women tended to be able to talk better about it, calm people down more. And obviously, you know, it's not an exact science, but ultimately each incident's different. But the the stats were very, very clear that um, those kinds of things. So it got me really focusing on how I can use my my psychology background and how we could run programs for the police about de-escalation and you know, using less force and all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of got involved in developing programs almost accidentally, if you like. So anyway, I won't bore you again, but I left. No, no, you're not boring me because (laughs) I love, you know, it's so amazing how when, when you're exposed to something, you see the questions and you're like, I can create something that will serve them. So I, I totally get that space. Okay, so look, I mean, I ultimately then decided I wanted to leave the police force and and really just focus on working for companies. Um, And I I went into HR. Well, I sort of fell into HR in the police and I really enjoyed the change management side of working with teams that weren't functioning very well and, you know, uh, developing that, developing leadership and all that. So that's kind of how my HR career started. And then as I worked for different companies, um, I started trying to apply better ways of developing the teams, developing our leaders, developing their health and well-being. So back, you know, I'm talking early 2000s, there wasn't many people really talking about mental health and well-being programs. So I was probably, you know, one of the early people doing a lot of this stuff because that kind of was my background. And I could see, you know, when I was working in the steel industry and timber industry and, you know, they're, they're hard jobs, heavy uh, manual stuff, and, and you tended to have, you know, people who maybe came from a poorer background, so lower socioeconomic backgrounds, who Mm -hmm. might have had some struggles along the way. And so 
you know, as I've gone through this journey, you know, you see these risk factors, if you like, um, people with those lower socioeconomic backgrounds, people with, you know, maybe a single parent. And, and so there's a lot of these, these kind of risk factors that come with poor mental health and, and having issues later on. So I was working with the teams on how I could help develop that with our, our team members and, and the people at the work front, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, I've done that in a number of organisations, but it kind of came to, and this is where the book and the stuff I'm doing now probably started to veer into this path of where I am now, where I was working for a, um, a hospital, basically, that had a lot of community health centres around the place. And as an executive um, team member, I got access to the board reports and, you know, what service providers we, we were um providing to to the people and I was horrified to see that there's these young kids 11 and 12 year olds who are on antidepressants who oh I know yeah scary it stuff it sickens me 100 percent. and you know, as a doctor obviously you'd understand that even more and so those things really bugged me you know seeing kids on suicide watch as well and and you know having obesity problems and drug problems and alcohol problems and all this stuff Anyway, that got me thinking about what I could do. Again, thinking of risk factors, you know, when you're a cop, you obviously go into houses and you see these young kids who've got parents who aren't very good role models. And, you, again, you think these poor kids are going to be the same parents in 20 years' time kind of stuff. And so, you know, it got me thinking about what I could do to use my background and psychology and the stuff that I've done with the police and, and how I could apply that to a school program for disadvantaged kids. This was kind of my... My thinking, I wanted to really try and help disadvantaged kids who had these parents and had the, you know, didn't probably have the greatest start to their lives with the people around them. So that's kind of how the whole thing started. So I developed a school program. I worked with a, a team of people who um, were, they worked for the education department, but they weren't actually, they'd been former teachers and they formed this thing called, it was called the Southwest. LEN, L-E-N, I can't remember exactly what it stood for, but they worked for the education department and they looked at programs that could enhance what teachers were doing and stuff. And so I, I worked pretty closely with them. We pitched it to some schools. They were excited by the program. We pitched it to the police because I also saw that, you know, if we were doing stuff way earlier on, it could potentially stop some, you know, criminal activity and, and delinquency and all the stuff that come with that. And so, you know, we, we got quite excited by it. At that stage, I didn't know a lot about promoting my own stuff because I was kind of always worked in a in a work environment rather than going out and trying to sell something. Yes, um, marketing is a big idea. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and something I've still covered the terms with. So, oh, um, oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a uh, it was it was different for me. And look. Uh, I tried to take it to a politician. We got quite high up. And anyway, in the nutshell, it didn't go ahead as, as I would have liked. They lost an election and then I had to start all over again. So I kind of shelved it for a while and just went yeah. back to, to doing a lot of work. I was doing stuff with asylum seekers. So here in Australia, um, the way we deal with asylum seekers is to send them over to Nauru, um, which a lot of people are, are upset about because um, they wanted to stop the boats for people were drowning and all that stuff coming trying to come to Australia. So... A few years ago, they they made the decision that they wouldn't allow anyone who came on illegally to Australia to actually come to Australia. They would go to Nauru, be processed there, and then if they're genuine refugees, they could come to Australia or they'd get sent back to where they came from. 
So that gave me access to a lot of, um, obviously, asylum seekers, you know, they've come with backgrounds that maybe are war-torn, have seen some horrific things, you don't generally want to flee a country unless, you know, something bad's happened and that kind of stuff. So, again, I started developing my programs a bit more um, to help our team deal with them preventing self-harm and suicide and all that kind of stuff. And so that, again, got me more thinking about, well, how can I apply my school program? How can I apply the stuff I'm dealing with my employees, but also the stuff we're dealing to stop self-harm, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so then I came up with the idea of, of writing the book, which is a story uh, about a person. And it's, it's, it's mainly fiction, but a lot of it's based on conversations and interviews I've had with people that have either tried to suicide, have had someone suicide that were close to them, have been bullied and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, a lot of the, the content of the book uh, is, is factual, but obviously the names are changed and all that sort of stuff. Um, What's the name of the book? So, so the book is called Lighting the Blue Flame. That's it there. Um, Why did you uh, name it Lighting the Blue Flame? So the the blue part of it, I, I run a program called Red Brain, Blue Brain. So I explain to people about how when you're stuck in amygdala-driven emotions, so fear, anger, guilt, shame, all those sorts of things, it's usually the amygdala that, that goes there, and, and I call that red brain. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and when I'm working with people to try and change how they're thinking about stuff, I say you need to be in what I call a blue brain space where we're using our frontal cortex and you're thinking of, um, you know, um, solution-based things and that kind of stuff, and that's where blue comes from. So the blue flame itself comes from so the colour blue comes from that perspective. In terms of the flame, I always like the idea of um, if you're going to start something, you know, you want it to spread like a flame. It starts with one little spark and then hopefully enough knock-on effect and then the ripples just go out and creates this massive flame. So that's kind of... Uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> where the name comes from. I love it. And you're, you're teaching people in that book, I haven't read it yet, but I will, is don't react respond because we're so you know we're so taught to and me being cuban i'm like i'm like do you remember (laughs) i love lucy ricky ricardo i do i do my father was ricky ricardo (laughs) (laughs) so that's how i learned you know the strongest personality and that's what these kids are learning is how to yeah so good oh i love that yeah 100 percent so, yeah, that's basically – so the book's written around this um, person that, that's deciding they're going to commit suicide, but they want to see change within the school. So I, I'm a character in the book and I'm, I'm myself in the book around mm-hmm. helping the school. So the person commits suicide, but he wants, you know, the, the, the school to understand, the parents to understand around who's bullied them, why, how it affected them, how the people that were watching them being bullied also had an impact and, 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 you know, prevented things from happening. And so, yeah, so in the book I come in as, as me helping the school and I'm introducing my school program in the book to the principal and the teachers around saying, look, you know, we need to do a lot more earlier on. Um, and, and part of it is about facilitated conversations, like to your point around feeling comfortable getting them to have the skills to have conversations. Because when I, I'm in, you know, working in, with companies, I'm dealing with adults and I'm amazed how many adults won't deal with issues. Like if you're treating me badly at work, I should be able to say, hey, doc, you know, th- that was very inappropriate or and feel comfortable to have these conversations. But people don't. They just I don't know. do it. They get offended. They get bitter. 
Yep. I know. I know. I get you. Hey, so can I just ask you, because you're just, you know, saying so much and I want to ask a lot of sure, little questions. Sure. So let's say, you know, because we've got a lot of parents that watch the MD and Chef Team podcast, listen to the MD Chef Team podcast. So what kind of tips would you give to a parent whose kid is being bullied? She knows, he knows that they're being bullied. What What would you recommend? Because yeah, I, you're I in that yeah. space. Yeah, look, there's a couple of things. One, one is that the parents, so when I talk about dialogue and conversations, it's, what people don't understand is this, I use this thing called the dialogue model, which comes out of a book called Crucial Conversations. And in the dialogue model, it basically says when two people are talking, like we are right now, if there's even a hint of um, safety in the conversation, people won't talk about it. And this is where I encourage parents to talk to their children about creating safety for them to feel comfortable to talk about anything. Because a lot of times kids might be bullied. They, they don't want to say certain things because they feel scared about it, so they don't say it. They go underground and they suffer in silence. So a big part of that is about, as a parent, taking the step to actually create safety for your child to have the conversation with you, saying no matter what I've said in the past, you know, sometimes, like you mentioned, you know, out my background too, my dad, I was born in South Africa, fairly robust dad, you know, and it was about, you know, if you showed emotions too much, it's the old suck it up princess, you know, be a man, big boys don't cry and all that stuff. But that, that sends a message to you as a child around what you can talk to that person about and what, how you interact with other people outside of that as well. So, you know, that's why mental health is such a problem with, especially with males, they don't feel comfortable talking about it because it's seen as weakness. It's seen as that. And if you're thinking, oh, I don't want to be a weak bugger, you know, so I won't talk about my feelings. I'll just suffer in silence or I'll go and have a drink with mates and that kind yeah, of stuff, but I, yeah. I don't talk. So, you know, encouraging parents to take the step to say, I've got to create safety for my child because one of the worst things when I was doing a lot of the research and talking to parents who had lost um, kids through suicide, a lot of them didn't know. They didn't see any signs. And, you know, we have this idea that it's suddenly going to be this automatic, oh, yeah, I can see that they're now struggling and, you know, now I've got to do something. But ultimately it's about being comfortable to say, I'm the parent, I'm going to have a conversation with my child and, and say to them, I want you to come and talk to me or mum no matter what's going on. We can always figure out the solution, but don't feel uncomfortable to not talk to us about stuff. So for me that's a key, key part of it around encouraging them to talk, being comfortable. And to your point about having conversations with children, um, it's such a key piece, you know, sitting down and talking with them and getting them comfortable. One of the things I, I encourage in the book is is the teachers allowing children to calibrate behaviour earlier on in, in the piece at school where mm. it's facilitated conversations, creating safety, giving them an opportunity to feel courageous about talking about something they wouldn't normally talk about. But, you know, doing it early, early on where it's not as hard to do. It's it's become normal. I mean, one of the examples I use is the Harvey Weinstein stuff, right? Once one woman came out, amazingly, all these other women came out. Why? Because the safety was there now. Mm-hmm. You know, someone's already gone first. The mm-hmm. first person is the courageous one. The ones that mm-hmm. came after, okay, here's the courageous too, but certainly not paving the way for the others. The first one that did it, you go, wow. You know, And some people sat on this for years. Um, and, and it's the same at the workplace. So, those things are such an important part of the skill base. So, you know, as a parent, if you're working with you, having that conversation, helping them with dialogue and, 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 and having them talk about emotions. Emotions aren't bad. I talk about red brain and stuff, but it's 
you know, you know, you just don't want to be stuck there. That's where it becomes a problem. If you're constantly sad or constantly angry or constantly scared, mm. it has an impact on your whole well-being, as, as you know, as a doctor. You know, people sometimes can can conjure things up that aren't really there and, and, and then they just get stuck and then they can't get out of it. Oh, the stories we create under <laughs> under the hair is amazing. You you really have to kind of step back and teach the kids and adults too. um, Hey, you need to pay attention to what you're saying to yourself because you're there 24 seven. Absolutely. One of the things I teach is how to become the boss of your brain and not the brain of your boss. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Um, one of the things about the dialogue model, which I didn't mention, is exactly that. There's two lots of dialogue going on. It's the interaction between yes. there, but then the one that's happening up in your brain. So the, the way it, it's kind of written is, you know, you see or hear something, you tell yourself a story, you then feel a certain way and now you act. And, you, you know, make, creating that space between reacting, as you said before, and, and responding very different. It's, it's that, that gap of what story do you tell yourself? If someone says something to you that annoys you, and gets you straight into what I call red brain, now you're in silence or violence, fight or flight, right? So Mm. the conversation goes one of two ways. You either back away because you're not an aggressive person or you become really aggressive and then, you know, it becomes an argument where people are just, they're not really talking the way they should be about the solution. They're talking about whatever's happening around them and and how they're reacting in that moment. And that internal dialogue is such a key part of it, you know, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So you're, you know, with the kids, you're saying, okay, crucial conversations, making it a safe zone between the parents and the yes. kids. Um, and then the, the converse teaching people about conversations they're having with their brain and yep. pay, stepping. Is there, are there other tips that you can give parents, you know, working with teenagers because here in New Zealand, we've got such a high suicide rate and um, this is not just for parents, it's also for teachers because teachers yeah. are now the new parent. Yeah, look, one of the things I run in my Red Brain, Blue Brain program is around helping people understand how their brains and their bodies interact. We have this view that we think rationally and we make decisions rationally, but we actually make decisions based on how we feel. And um, a big part of, you know, the initiatives in the Red Brain, Blue Brain stuff is about understanding how we develop patterns. And often we develop patterns, we don't even know we've developed it, right? Like if you're a child, who's, and this is where the risk factors come into it. Like if you're a child who's had childhood trauma, that, I can't remember the exact number now, but it's like three or four times more likely that you're going to have um, issues in a mental health space in the future because of that trauma. And part of that is that, you know, when you're a child, you take things in passively. So if you've got domestic violence happening around you, that just becomes normal. So you don't really think about it, but it's affecting the undercurrent of you. So how you feel mm. becomes a problem. So some people that, you know, you see them as kids and they think they're shy, there's actually a fear factor in what's happening around them because they don't want to interact with other people or they see that as bad or they're scared. So there's a fear factor for wanting to do that. So that then affects all their lives. So a big part of, you know, as, as, as parents is about really focusing on, and this is the downside of it is that generally parents who are causing some of that kind of grief and, and that kind of trauma aren't going to be good role models. So, you know, you're kind of preaching to the wrong people, the people that really want to do well with the kids and doing all those things and encouraging and all that is, is fantastic. Um, 
they will focus on doing these things and they will look at different ways of getting my child to be more robust up here and, and problem solving when they have issues and having those conversations are, are adding skills to the child mm. and then go, hey, you're all right to be angry. I see, because a lot of times, you know, as parents, you kind of go, if the kid says something that annoys you, you go straight into, don't do that or, you know, <laughs> and so we, we use fear. I'm as guilty. As well, <laughs> we all are. We all are. Are Absolutely. you a parent? Do you have kids? I do, but my, mine are older now. Mine's a 26 and 24 shortly. So, yeah, um... so are mine. So are mine. And I'm still like thinking, oh, I could have done that part a little bit better, but that's okay. <laughs> fly, Absolutely. fly. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, there's no perfect way to parent, right? Like, I mean, sometimes there's things that, you know, from a safety perspective that you kind of want them to really get it because you can, you don't want to get run over by a car when you're oh, a yeah, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, all that yeah. stuff. And so, it's, it's look, it is tough, but I think it's important that as a parent you can kind of go back, think about it, and go, well, what can I do differently? How can I help them? How can I encourage them? How, you know, without... I'll be a better grandparent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I guess for me it's about understanding a bit more. One of the, I suppose one of the aims for me is about, I wrote an article not long ago about an unconsciously incompetent parent. So when you don't know what you don't know, and when I run these sessions with adults, they come to me afterwards and they're in their 50s and they go, wow, I didn't know I thought like that. I didn't know that I have these patterns of thinking. And, wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's enlightening for them. So part of this process is about saying, well, if you're, if you're unconsciously incompetent and you're hearing this stuff, and then you become consciously incompetent, you might want to go and find out a bit more about this stuff. I'm not the font of all knowledge on this. There's a lot of books out there, you know, Joe Dispenza's stuff's out there, awesome stuff. Um, go and read, go and think, go and ask questions. And at least if you're doing that and you are, you know, we're all going to experience some trauma in our lives. You know, if you've lived more than a year or two, I think you're going to experience <laughs> some trauma uh, in your life. And so, we can't avoid that. We have to be able to just how do we deal with it better? We're going to have grief in our lives. How do we deal with that better? You can't, you know, one, one of the good sayings is when you're going through hell, don't stop. Just keep going because you want to get, get out of there. Get out of there. Yeah, very good. <laughs> and, and so using um, that high emotional components again, again, emotions aren't bad for you, but don't stay and get stuck there. You can be sad when you think about someone that you've lost. You're allowed to do that. That's humanity, right? But mm-hmm. Don't let it become all day, every day. I, I dealt with two police officers who, who had a son, unfortunately, that had drowned and um, he was only four or five and they really struggled to deal with, you know, they kept his room exactly the same and mm. all this kind of stuff. And for them, they just got stuck in that high level of emotion of, of the sadness and obviously, you know, it's a massive grieving process. But, you know, for them to actually then become uh, some kind of normalcy, I know you're never going to fill that hole, but, being able to still be productive in their lives was a big part of how we had to change what they were thinking about his death. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, again, using red brain, blue brain, they were focusing on all the stuff they lost. And then it was more around saying, well, let's focus on all the stuff you did get with him and what can you do now to enhance the memory of him and that kind of stuff. So I had to change their focus from red into that blue where they're now thinking of solutions and they came up with a foundation for him and all that sort of thing. Because, you know, our, I know, I know, and I'm still learning all this stuff, is the subconscious develops train tracks and we get stuck in those train tracks and we have to be consciously aware of what seeds we're planting and creating new train tracks in the brain that we want to be following. So you're helping totally. people switch train tracks in their subconscious, which yes. does 
like what 90% of our lives runs our pretty much 90% of our lives. I wanted to ask you parents and children and social media, uh-huh. what, what can you offer people? And even like I get bullied on social media. I'm like, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> but you know, there's always going to be haters. You're, not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody loved Jesus. So, Hey, it just, that's just the way it is. But I know that now, but what do you, what do you say? When you think about interactions, again, the dialogue model stuff comes into the equation. When you're talking face-to-face, um, it's a lot, I'd say, difficult. If, if you think that the person's going to react a certain way, then you might be a little bit more thoughtful about what you say. The thing about social media is it allows you to be the old anonymous keyboard person, you know, and then they can they, they feel more courageous and they can put a, a comment out there or, or an opinion. And, and, and I guess the, the skill here is about really working with parents on how their kids can understand that, to your point, not everybody's going to like you. You're going to be okay with that. And, you know, um, sometimes, again, fear factor comes into it. So it's about encouraging them to say, hey, you're allowed to say things and other people are allowed to say things, but you don't have to, well, it doesn't have to all be taken on board. So if you understand that something's hurtful, like I'm sure when you see some of that, you might go, hey, that's not really nice, but you kind of let it just flow off you and go, oh, well, that's their opinion. I'm not going to This is what that. I do. I go. Yeah. Exactly. But I, but I have to do that in my mind. It's an action, you know? Yeah. yeah. So all things like that is exactly the type of activities that people need to understand. You can take it in. You can go, okay, it's just feedback, right? How you frame it in your mind is the key part of it. So if, if, mm. if someone puts online, oh, Clint's ugly or something like that, and I'm a teenager, you, you take that on board and then you go, oh, you know, and now they become self-conscious or whatever. Um, but part of that is encouraging your child and, and talking to them about how did that make you feel? Oh, I felt angry about it or that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's an emotion. But now does that person mean anything to you? So it's about helping you frame yourself into a blue brain thinking space. So even if you're analysing, you're using that prefrontal cortex, that's where analysis work gets done. So, you know, getting them talking, thinking about it, but not letting it go into a red space is a really important thing. We're not teaching people with, um, you know, doing mental health first aid kind of stuff and they're dealing with someone who's maybe suicidal. I know I'm digressing from the kid stuff, but it's the same okay, kind of model. Okay. It's, 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 it's the same kind of approach as around saying you're trying to take them out of a red brain space into a blue brain space. However you do that, it doesn't matter. Asking them questions, getting them to think about things, getting them to analyse things, it's all shifting into blue brain spaces. So... You know, in the moment when, when people are dealing with that, the first thing when we did police work too was about you staying calm. I can't stop you from going into a red brain space right now, but if I stay calm and I'm in a blue brain space, I can actually have a better conversation with you and maybe I can calm you down. But if I go into, oh, you know, crazy mode, then you're more likely to do that yourself. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's kind of the first part and, and that's the key. And I just want to add, for parents, they can't go into the red zone when their kids tell them, I'm being bullied, look at what they just posted. You yeah. know, yeah. we we got to we got to be in the blue zone before we even let anything out of our mouth. So we've got to switch. Correct. And, yeah, and, and good think point. Solutions. Think solutions, you know, because that is a blue brain experience. The moment you go, okay, how can I help my child? Rather than going, oh, crap, I don't know what to do. And that's a part of the problem with um, when I'm doing even the mental health first aid stuff, 
people don't know what to do. And part right. of it is, a, you know, um, they go into, it's like the Are You OK Day, you know, talk about social uh, suicide awareness and stuff. It's fine to ask people the question, but what if they actually say, no, I'm not okay? Then you go, you know, and then panic kind of sets in and they either say nothing, which makes it worse because the person goes, I've just told you I'm not okay and then you've just gone and left me. Now I feel even more abandoned. So it's it's understanding enough about how the brain works, how we want to try to focus them from red into blue. So asking questions is a key part of it. You know, when I'm talking about mental health first aid, Asking lots of questions. So, how did that make you feel? What do you and, and trying to focus on a future state for them is important. Like saying, you know, how do you think your parents would feel about this? Or, or you know, let, let's and having them have to think about how their parents might think about them suiciding or, or doing something to themselves is again a blue brain experience. So they have to think about put themselves in that person's position, all that kind of stuff. So, you know. Um, yeah, a re- really big part of it is about asking questions and, and keeping yourself calm is, is such a key part of it. Oh, my gosh. So true. And the mental resilience that we've got to have, plus we're teaching others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Resilience is a very good word because, um, as I said, you know, we, we're humans. Things are going to happen to us. And if we've got no coping skills, and we're talking about coping skills, any skill that allows you to at least stay calm, think about things, and then make a, a reasonably rational decision rather than firing, firing from the hip where I feel angry, I'm just going to lash out. Um, but understanding some of that is, is such a key part of it. What do you do? What are your signed up? Okay, so let's go deep now, Plant. <laughs> so why don't you share with us some of your, your, men, your tactics to be mentally resilient? Look, um, especially my police days, uh, when I, I've obviously been to suicides, I've been to some horrific stabbings and, and all that kind of stuff. A big part of it for me is really using humour as much as it sounds bizarre. When we would interact with the other cops, you know, you, you kind of make light of it a little bit. And, and, and it's not always, from the outside in, it looks like maybe being a little bit nasty, but, you know, there, there is that coping component. The other thing is talking to people. I find... Um, I've always been a natural talker. If I am struggling, I'll talk to my wife about stuff. I, I was abused as a kid um, by a family member. And, and you know, to be fair, I, I found that I, I didn't really struggle with it later on because I was able to go, that happened. It's no longer in my life. I moved from South Africa to Australia. I haven't seen that person in a long time. And so for me, it was, it was okay. But, you know, I, I talked to my wife about it. She gets more angry about it than I do. But... You know, having the conversations, framing it in your head and then kind of going, well, it's gone. It's a memory of an event. And so, you know, for, for me, I've, I've always kind of been in the position where I can look at it, think about it, might make you feel a certain way, but then being able to shift. And, mm. and, and having that ability and understanding your own brain enough to go, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yes, it happened however many years ago. That Clint is a different Clint now. Um, mm. And so, yeah, understanding a little bit about, you know, you mentioned about taking control of your own unconscious thoughts and, and brain, and, you know, that, that's a key skill and that's part of the reason that I have been able to use some of those techniques myself and I've seen it work for other people where you're, you, you're, you consciously take control of your unconscious. Um, Joe Dispenza used the example of it's like having a, a wild horse and if you just let it run, 
it can take you to some very bad places. But if you rein it in and actually direct it where you want to go, it'll go wherever you need it to go. So Mm -hmm. taking control, understanding that, um, like one of the techniques I use is about you being a director in your own movie. So people who are stuck in a PTSD moment is about saying, okay, talk to me about the event, frame it up like it's in a movie. You're the director. Let's rewind now. What do you want to cut out? How do you want to change it? What actors do you want to add to it? Because that is your brain thinking about that event. Nobody else. That ex- that actual event is so far gone. It only exists in the ether somewhere and in your brain. So you can change those things. And so understanding that you can change and, and be deliberate is a key, key part of, of the things I, I try and really instill in, in the program. And in yourself. And in myself. I'm not always as good as someone cuts me oh. off. I'm very, I'm a road rager, right? So I kind of have to really calm myself. The old four, three quick breaths is always a good start too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, about laughter, um, I'm all for laughter. Did you ever, did you ever know this? Uh, did you ever see this movie called Patch Adams? Yes, Wait, yes, yes. Well, Patch Adams is actually a real doctor that yes. I I studied under, and he in nineteen oh, wow. yeah in 1999 we went over um to uh bosnia and went into the refugee camps and just helped people out and that so we were all dressed as clowns we were doctors and (laughs) that was when i learned that was like a big turning point the power of humor and learning how to laugh and joy i i couldn't speak with these people but i could speak with them because we were able to smile and and have fun so i'm all for laughter um and i love the director of your own movie you know Before the age of 11, this is something that I read, before the age of 11, everything that somebody says to us, it's like the door's wide open. Everything a parent or a relative or a friend or a teacher says to us, it gets planted into our subconscious and we believe it. But then after the age of 11, we can actually close that door and go, no, you know, that's when the teenage, those are called (laughs) pre-teenage. And we have to kind of wake up to the fact is, are you going to let what somebody said before the age of 11 affect you for the, what if you live to be 120? You know, are you going to let that affect you for all those years? You've got to kind of have to learn how to pull out those weeds. And, and I love what you're talking about mental resilience and teaching people to, to, to look at their thoughts and have crucial conversations. And, and I love it. And I, I see you, helping, serving, and adding value to millions of people around the world with the work you. that you're doing. So yeah, thank I'm hoping you. so. <laughs> oh, you will. You will. Just it's all, you know, timing, right? Yeah, there's a lot of things going on. A lot of people have been interested in it. Um, so that, that's that been well received. And, and when I have run them, you know, you, you get the feedback, which is great. And, and, you know, in the past I've had individuals come and talk to me about stuff that I've helped them with and how that's done so yeah it, it all it makes you feel good about doing it but also making sure that um it's it's effective and so for me like I mean if I look back on my counseling days I really didn't even though I did my counseling I did a psych degree and then I did the counseling which was another post-psych um thing at university I never actually felt that I was adequate as a as a counselor I needed to know more and so I found that over the years as I interacted with more people I felt I could um so, so for me personally, I think counselling is great, but it's all one-on-one mostly, mm. you know, so you can only get to so many people. Mm-hmm. When, when, when you look at the bigger picture, and this is kind of where 
the years of different roles has, has come into it for me is about saying I'm not aligned to just one model of you know, helping people in, in a psych space. Um, some people are all about CBT or all about a particular framework. I, I don't see it like that. I think there's many ways to the top of the mountain and going and actually exploring. To your point around, you know, what 11-year-old or 12-year-old goes, okay, what have I learned in the past? Why have I got this undercurrent? Um, why do I feel fearful? Why do I feel angry? Blah, blah, blah. No one really does that as far as I can see. So asking them those questions and encouraging them to talk about it is the way to do it. How do you reflect? How do you do that? You know, people write journals and all kinds of things. Again, lots of different ways to get to a better headspace. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's about going and exploring those things and, and just thinking about that a little bit and going, okay. And as a parent, you know, if you can obviously, if you're a good parent and you can do those things and be a good role model and talk to your kids, yes, you're never going to get it right. There's no tick every box kind of thing that can happen in parenthood, as you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, it's about exploring different options and looking at different things and giving your kids exposure to, you know, as many good experiences as they can be and, and allowing them to go and try things and talk to people. And, you know, that, that to me is is such a, an important part of it. But the social media part, I'm sorry, I've missed a bit on that, was also about you know, getting people to go and talk to people. If you've got a problem with someone, go and talk to them. Don't get into a social media war with them if you know them personally, that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, those kinds of things are important. I, I do think dialogue is a little bit of a dying art in terms of, you know, people, you see it all the time in a restaurant, five people at a table and they're all on their phone and no one's talking to each other. Um, so that's a little bit also about, you know, some rules around stuff like that with your children and, and encouraging good talk because it's good to, you know, when you learn your conversations, because I remember as a kid watching my parents interact and, and, and that kind of stuff, exposure to, to having adult conversations isn't always a bad thing. I know sometimes we tell the kids, oh, you know, you get out of the room, you don't want to be part of this conversation, but mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're crucial skills that, that I think um, people need to talk about a bit more. And that's the bottom line is people don't know how to have conversations. Very true. Very, very important. Um I wanted to say, have you looked into doing virtual masterclasses on Zoom, you know, for thousands of people so that you can reach more people? I have thought about something similar. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's some um, things on uh, what's it called Clubhouse, which is more of a, I don't know if you're involved with Clubhouse, which is um, you can set up a room. It's like a chat room, but it's live, so it's not recorded, but people mm -hmm. can jump in, talk. I've had a few conversations with some people, but yeah, in a similar vein, you can just jump in. But yeah, I mean, it's, there's no reason that, that we couldn't do something. I've been on a couple of summits where done suicide prevention summit last year. Where I was more like a proper public speaker kind of environment. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, that that's definitely something that, that I probably should think about. Yeah, because you can reach so many more people. Mm. Just, just, guess. I'm just dropping a seed. I'm planting the seed. <laughs> like my husband said, you're planting another seed, aren't you? And I go, yes, and I will be watering that seed. <laughs> oh, but look, it sounds like, a, I mean, again, it comes down to the marketing and, and who comes to it, I guess. But yeah, I'd be definitely open to doing something like that. For me, it's about spreading the word and, and getting people just thinking about it differently and, and, and going, oh, okay, is that how I think? I didn't realize that. Or if I am struggling, you know. Again, if you're in hell, don't stop. You've got to keep moving. So what's that keep moving bit look like for each person? You know, if they keep going back to the sadness or the fear, 
then they just don't move on. Yeah. And then that's, that's the key piece. Whatever gets you through. Like, you know, the beauty about this whole stuff is that, you know, some people find religion, some people do exercise, some people jump out of a plane, you know, <laughs> this is their thing. So whatever changes for that person is, is the key part of it. But exploring options is, you know, a consistency I think people need to think more about. Right. And instead of numbing the pain with alcohol, drugs, pornography, gambling, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Pull off the scab and get it healed. You know, it's just, yeah, I know, but it's, we all, nobody wants to feel any pain and it is painful to, 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 to get healed. Healing is a a painful experience, but it's so worthwhile because then you find freedom. It is. And look, I mean, the other thing is, you know, there's all these other spin-off things that come with that. If you're in pain, I mean, you think of domestic violence, it's usually because the person, the perpetrator is feeling angry about something and they're just lashing out at this person. They have nothing to do with their spouse or the person Mm. that they're doing it with. It's got to do with how they're feeling. Like here in Australia, you know, um, you know, some of our Indigenous people are stuck in a past that makes them angry. It's a bit like the Black Lives Matter stuff, right? Those people that are looting the place, they're not, they're not angry at the cop. They're just angry in general. So they're lashing out and they're doing the things they do. Yes, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with the protest, but where's all this anger and do we really have to go burning police cars? And you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like nothing good's coming out of that. But you can kind of understand the anger and the pent-up rage now. This is the outlet almost. So, you know, we've got to deal with those things at that level a lot better. And, and as a society, we should be looking at going, well, how do we get people out of that headspace? Because if I'm angry all the time, more likely something bad's going to happen eventually. Right. Um, you know, whether it's taking it out on someone else or, or, or doing something silly or, you know, going and, whatever happens you know and and that's a lot of looking at the symptoms is a key part but just dealing with the symptom is not enough we need to go to the root cause and and to your point around helping them heal will actually lead to better things on later on and so the earlier we can get to those ones the the better and hopefully they want to heal very true do you know because my dad, my dad was such an alcoholic, you know, and like he's gone now and daddy, I've forgiven him for all the junk he did. But, you know, now that he's gone and like I'm safe, like he's gone <laughs> yeah. and I'm able to look and go, OK, he was angry. So he drank, you yeah. know, and he had terrible conversation skills. He just knew how to yell. <laughs> yeah. So so that was his way of dealing with it. So, you know. That's a good lesson. Like, I'm really grateful I had that in my life because that helps me understand a lot of alcoholics. And uh, so I wanted to also thank you for sharing your story because, you know, now we can share it because we're like way over on the other side. But during that that middle part, that struggle, it's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think, um, you know, people talking about their own issues and things that have happened, helps with that because people can put themselves in that position and go, oh, wow, that happened to me or I can kind of deal with similarities or, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and everyone's coping mechanisms too. Like the, the thing about, you know, when we talk about even suicide prevention, a lot of people focus on the ones that have suicide or that have got into problem. But when you go the other way and say, do you realise how many people go through trauma as well and they don't feel suicidal? Yes, they had a tough time, but mm-hmm. most of them come out of it. Like if you really do the stats, you know, 
it's way in favour of the people that, that have dealt with it and dealt with it okay. Not everyone deals with it okay, but, um, you know, this is kind of the, the importance of understanding that you can be okay. You do have neuroplasticity. We can right. do more with what, you know, if we're armed with the right knowledge and the right thinking and going through and, and analysing some of this stuff, you can actually get through it. You can. Lots of people have been through yeah. worse things, you know. And that's the hope, you know, that you've got to give to people. You've got to serve that up on the plate because people become hopeless yes. in a difficult situation. And especially exactly. if they're holding it in, they're not going to share it. Well, then, you know, that's that 100%. story. Yeah. And the dialogue is crazy, yeah. And and it, it's funny because it's self-defeating, isn't it? <laughs> oh you know, um, it's amazing when they go into that spiral and then if you're actually thinking about the sequences of events and you're going, by them thinking that way, their cortisol levels are going up, their other levels of other things are going down, they're now in a spiral where their body's working against them, their thoughts are working against them, and it's only going down and down and down even further. And then to your point, they don't look for solutions because they're just stuck there and they they just see this as there's no other way out when they get to that final point of, you know, near suicide kind of stuff, then, you know, uh, rational brains aren't around at the moment. No, it's just survival, survival brain. Totally. So now what's the name of your book before we before we land this plane? What's the name <laughs> of your book? So Lighting, Lighting, the Blue, Lighting the Blue Flame, yeah. By Clint Adams. My, Michael will go ahead and put the link on the podcast sure. for everybody to take a look at. Hello, Chef Michael here. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you subscribed to the podcast and left us a review.